Hello, and welcome to the Range Project Podcast. This is Chris McGrory, and I'm currently a senior at Harvard on the baseball team and study psychology and economics. And in these conversations, I'm trying to learn from the people around me. That means understanding what these amazing people do and how they do it. Tips, tricks, and routines they have, plus the mental frameworks they use so you and I can apply them in our own lives. And for this one, I didn't have to look very far for my guest. Tony Shu, currently living on the other side of my wall in the dorm next door, is also a senior at Harvard, studies the special major called Urban Studies, and is the co-founder of the nonprofit social enterprise Break Time. Now, Break Time's mission is to end young adult homelessness and does so by providing a first step into the workforce in addition to personally empowering their people. And just prior to COVID-19, Tony and his co-founder, Connor Schoen, were ready to open Break Time Cafe, a brick-and-mortar cafe that would employ around 15 young adults experiencing homelessness and give them on-the-job training as baristas. Now, in spite of circumstances that prevented plans literally years in the making, and not to mention the pressure of having financial backing from major financial institutions, Harvard, the city of Boston, and more, Tony and his team gracefully pivoted. Over the past year, Break Time has transitioned to a double impact model, employing young adults experiencing homelessness and feeding food insecure communities around Boston. At this point, these young people have prepared and delivered well over half a million meals, all the while receiving a living wage and on-the-job skills. In this conversation, Tony provides a behind-the-scenes look into all that, and in the back half, gives a deep dive into his daily meditation practice that lets him check in with himself in the affirmation he says every morning that guide his own life. So maybe you're a budding social entrepreneur and have a project of your own in mind. Maybe you want to learn about the realities of homelessness and the state of solutions like me. Or maybe you just want an uplifting story about a college student making a positive impact in his community. Whoever you are, I hope you take something away from this conversation. Please enjoy this one with me and Tony Shu. Tony, how you doing? I'm doing well. How are you, Chris? I am wonderful. Uh, thank you for asking. And I was thinking it is amazing that the two of us have lived in the same dorm for the past three plus years and have never met, never run into each other. So I feel like this was a long time coming uh, and I'm really excited just to get the chance to get to know you a little better and your projects and yeah, finally get the ch chance to properly, properly chat. 
Likewise. Yeah, it's it's really great to, to get a chat with you, Chris. And and funny that it seems like this past week we like keep running into each other outside. So right. <laughs> yeah. It's hilarious. I know, I know it's a small world, but um yeah, I'm looking forward to this one. We we could go in a ton of different directions because you have all these divergent interests, but I would love to start with the early days of break time, which you're staring at this huge issue of homelessness. And like, how did you decide on your vision, your mission? Yeah. Like if you could, you could take me back to those early days and like that early vision, I would love to hear that. Yeah. So I didn't come into college thinking that I would help create something like break time. It, it, you know, I, I knew I was interested in entrepreneurship, but this idea of, of what break time eventually became was just like not in my, I guess, ideas or plans. But what I did know about coming to Harvard and just experiencing life in Harvard Square was that homelessness was and is an issue I deeply care about and is something that is just um, so pervasive throughout Harvard Square. And so one of the first things um, I started to do after coming to Harvard was to start volunteering at the Y2Y Harvard Square Shelter. And I think it's it's an incredible place, also founded by students, um, probably like five or six years ago. And when I was there, I had a chance to talk with the young adults who were staying at the shelter and just hearing their stories and um, hearing how they got there and what they want in their lives and was just pretty distraught to hear that for young adults experiencing homelessness, even though a stable job is the most critical thing that they need to achieve stable housing, a stable life, that it's like the most difficult thing. And I would just hear the young adults staying there talk about, um, you know, submitting applications for a job and just being denied or not even knowing what to put in the address spot for their job application and just thinking that like this should be, there should be a better way for this really important challenge. And I was also really distraught to hear and to learn more about kind of how young adult homelessness even comes to happen, because we often don't really think about young people who experience homelessness. And the the sad statistics are that um, the vast majority of young adults become homeless uh, because of a conflict with their family. And a lot of the times it's because a young adult might come out as LGBTQ and may not feel safe in their family or may no longer be able to stay with their family. You know, there are other issues around family conflict or abuse or, um, you know, outside of family conflict, there's young adults who are aging out of the foster care system. And so for a variety of reasons, there are in Boston, I mean, the, the statistic is that there are around 400 young adults experiencing homelessness, but most people consider that a vast undercount. And one statistic even shows that one in 10 young adults will experience homelessness at some point uh, during the year. And that's just a, a really shocking and scary number. And so I knew that this was something I did want to dedicate my college experience to. Well, thank you for giving me that that framework. And maybe let's double click on Break Time Cafe, because as I understand it, at least the vision pre-COVID was to have something that was beyond just a job, which is a huge cornerstone, right? Just getting that experience. But it was beyond that. Maybe you could speak to how important like 
the mentorship would have been and like those aspects that we might not think of that, okay, it's more than just giving them a job, right? Absolutely. And where break time specific niche is, is as that kind of first step into the workforce. So um, when we first started break time, we thought we were going to do something like a job training program. And then we essentially looked at the landscape of what already existed, talked to as many people as we could find and learned that essentially there are a ton of job training programs that exist. But what really was missing was that first step after that program, like where do young adults experiencing homelessness go after they've completed this program? And we want to break time to really be that bridge, that stepping stone. And we were thinking of, you know, employment is, is very important in itself, right? Having a routine, um, having a sense of purpose, a place to go. But there's also a lot of other things that an employer could provide that maybe they don't. So we think about supplemental uh, job readiness. We think about overall kind of personal well-being. Uh, we think about financial literacy and financial empowerment. And so we're not only building a job, but we're trying to create kind of the ideal employment experience, especially for someone who whose life is very unstable. And so we think about, um, you know, employment at a living wage. We incorporate a match savings program where if young adults are saving some of the money that they earn, that we will match that one for one. Um, we think about the additional trainings, workshops, and mentorship we can help facilitate. And we most importantly think about how we can empower the young adults in our program to be leaders themselves, to be change makers themselves. Whether that's within our organization, we have a youth leadership board who helps us make decisions on almost every part of our program, but also in, in being a change maker by sharing their story. We're lucky to have had a lot of media features and, and media attention, and we are very intentional about using each of those features to enable and empower a young adult to share their own story. So it's kind of like it's crafting the experience that we think should exist. Um, and then hopefully one day being able to bring other employers and other um, partners into that experience too. And going back to those early days, was your vision to, to go big, to create something that could scale up where you focus like, okay, let's help five people, 10 people, what was your thought process around that? We've always been very aspirational. I think our, our organization's mission is to work towards ending young adult homelessness. But I think that has to start from somewhere. And so I think at the beginning, we were very cognizant that we have to start small. We have to really understand the challenge deeply and work with people who are experiencing homelessness closely to build something that at least works at a small scale. And so we saw the cafe as like kind of the starting point, even though actually the cafe probably was not the best starting point in that even after we kind of put forth the idea of the cafe, we took a step back and ran a smaller pilot program where we employed young adults from Y to Y to essentially operate a catering and delivery service. And we started doing catering um, for Harvard events and parties and conferences. And through that, we're able to test a little bit of our employment model from the beginning. Um, and that enabled us to have the confidence to work towards building the break time cafe. And then it's, it's just kind of like, you know, it, it keeps on snowballing and you, you learn more and more and more. And even though you feel like you're doing really small things, you know, a couple of years down the line, you look back and you see the foundation you've laid both in terms of 
your own learning, in terms of the community you've built um, and the people on your team. Um, and so that's, I think, the most rewarding thing looking back is like at the beginning, it felt like we weren't really making a huge difference, but that's all for um, a greater purpose. And then COVID hit and correct me if I'm wrong, but you took this model of the the meal prep and the meal delivery and I don't know, check my stats, but you guys prepped and helped deliver over half a million meals in Boston. Do I have that right? Yeah, I think the the number as as of today is over six hundred fifty thousand, and which is just a number that like I can't even cons- like wrap my head. It's so big that it's just like you can't even wrap my head around it. Like I said, so. Was it challenging letting go of that vision for the cafe or how did you think about that transition given the circumstances of the world? It was really hard to let go. And I think it was something that we had been building for what felt like a long time, I think at that point, like maybe two years. Um, and it was something that we had invested so much energy and, and hope and love and care into. And I think what made it even harder was we were so close to um, the actual grand opening of it, which was slated for April um, oh, no. uh, of this year, or uh, I guess of last year. And we talked to our advisors when when COVID um, happened, and we asked, "What do we do in this case?" And one of our advisors told us, "Oh, you should you should just hibernate. Like you should wait this out, see how it goes next year, save your money, and then." reopen the cafe when COVID's done. And we are like, hmm, okay, that's that's one option. And then we are like, well, let's, let's probe that a little bit further and started talking to the young adults we were working with and just kept hearing like, no, like we we can't wait. We don't have the luxury of waiting for a year to be able to, to do this. And simultaneously, there were so many compounding crises, including food insecurity um, that was exacerbated, exacerbated by the pandemic. And we just thought, we're not in a position to be able to just hibernate. And so another advisor um, helped us think through, you know, what is essential to what you do? And then think through the fact that whatever's not essential, you have to be willing and able to compromise on. And so for us, if we really thought about it, the cafe itself wasn't essential. What was really essential was that we were providing transitional employment for young adults experiencing homelessness. Like that is the mission. There are probably a million different avenues that you could take to get to that mission. And the cafe was simply one of those avenues. And so we took a step back, looked at the resources we we had, looked at the, the building we were in, the kitchen that we were working with, and thought about not only how can we create employment for young adults experiencing homelessness, but how can we empower young adults experiencing homelessness to be able to serve their communities as well? and be put in a position where they're not just receiving services or receiving help. They're the ones actually giving help to others in need at this critical time. And so the program we launched, the Double Impact Initiative, has that double impact. It's creating employment opportunities for these young adults. um, And the work that they do is preparing um, meals and, and more broadly promoting resilience within their community. Um, And so the pandemic actually helped us not only reconsider what our model meant, but help us unlock additional layers of impact within our model. And it's so clean to hear now after the fact, because it worked out and 
but I can't imagine the heartbreak that was COVID hitting just weeks before grand opening. So thank you for painting a very clear picture, but I think that's, that's important to note. And I'd say to backtrack, maybe help me better understand homelessness. And I know you mentioned conflicts with family for young adults. I think of the homeless folks. I see a lot of mental illness and addiction. And I guess what other like systemic issues am I missing? Is there, and like, is there a root cause or is that too reductive? I think there are many root causes. And I think one thing that's been a learning process for us as well is, is just recognizing that homelessness does look a number of different ways and that it's often um, a spectrum and that people can experience homelessness if they're couch surfing because they have nowhere else to stay or staying in a shelter or living in a transitional housing program. So there, are, even though we often consider the homeless population to be this um, monolithic group. There's actually a number of different reasons, a number of different root causes, a lot of it rooted in systemic inequities stemming from race, class, et cetera. And while there isn't one um, specific root cause, I mean, you, you point on things like mental illness. And the one thing I want to say there is that oftentimes, you know, it is the experience of being homeless, homeless that contributes or can exacerbate mental illness rather than the other way around. Um, that's not always the case again, but one thing we think about at break time is how can, how can we try to intervene as early as possible in this cycle of homelessness? How can we, um, and that is one of the reasons why we first started with, with young people, is how can we support young people who are still figuring themselves out, still grappling with what the world means um, and what their place is in the world? How can we support them at this critical juncture in their life in essentially transcending or, or transitioning out of um, homelessness? So we, we do focus on really on, on early intervention. So if that, that sounds like your niche, what are other current strategies for combating homelessness? And then because it is, I mean, my real first moment of realization was going to the Tenderloin District of San Francisco and then coming to Cambridge on a smaller scale. So I guess, what do you think needs to change to make real progress on this issue? Right. Well, I think unfortunately how a lot of people approach it is through just trying to erase homelessness and think of it only in terms of optics instead of thinking about the actual people who um, are experiencing it. And so my mind just jumps to like how people or, or cities kind of engage in, in, in hostile architecture, how there are places where um, people experiencing homelessness are, are, are cleared out um, because it's, you know, maybe it doesn't look great for the city, for example. Can you define hostile architecture? I know you do study urban studies, so I'm not sure if this is part of your academic program, but yeah, help me. What's, what is that? Yeah, I would say it's um, one example. I, I'm not exactly sure if this is uh, architecture per se, but um, if you think about park benches that have kind of the, what are they called? Like the armrests or, or armrest just like in things, the middle. 
in the, in the middle, middle, right? To prevent, <laughs> to prevent someone from sleeping on it. Just a, a simple example like that, where it's clearly designed to dissuade a certain, you know, certain type of, of, of behavior or, or usage. And so if you have the, the energy and the, the thought to, to do that, to create that, to design it in that way, I'm sure you could redirect potentially your, your energy and thought into designing systems and, and supports that aren't just kind of a band-aid on, on the problem. And so kind of back to your question about what is it that I would hope our country and society really engages more with is, is looking at homelessness as, <clears throat> again, not just housing. Housing is a critical part of homelessness, um, obviously, and ensuring that we have enough affordable housing, that we have systems to support people who are already in housing, but who potentially face things like eviction or foreclosure. You know, it's not only looking at housing, but also looking at the intersecting systems and aspects of life, such as employment. And that obviously is our focus in seeing that stable employment is the most critical factor in achieving stable housing. And there's often this chicken and the egg thing where it's like you need um, a job to be able to sustain a home, but often you need a home to be able to get a job and then to actually do well in your job. And so again, it's looking at like all the different factors that affect your well-being um, and not just treating it as a housing issue. It's kind of an issue that touches upon everything, unfortunately, but I think being able to zoom out a little bit and offer support related to employment, related to education, related to health. I think those are all um, needed solutions. And thank you for touching on education and health, because my next question was going to be, what are those other buckets? But it sounds like those employment, education, and health would be some of the big umbrellas that we need to address beyond just like the prerequisite of having affordable housing. Do I have that right? Yeah, I would say those are those are some of the other major buckets. Yes. Gotcha. And thank you. This is helping me kind of reconceptualize how I look at this issue. So uh, this is exactly why I wanted to connect with you. And maybe let's go back to back to break time and those early days in more of your decision making from like a a project approach. And I would love to know, like, how did you quote unquote, go for it and take that idea from an idea to execution? I guess it starts with um, finding a deep personal resonance with the issue. Um, So it's that personal fire that I think drives any entrepreneur, any social entrepreneur. And for me, it's just reflecting on my own family and, and my own mom's experience with housing instability when she first moved to the U.S. and how for her working at a Chinese restaurant as her first job as a as a dishwasher and, and hostess was her way to eventually go back to school to engage in a successful career and eventually start her own business and and again for me tapping into that personal why is always the uh, the driving force. But then you look at like, okay, how do you turn a passion into into something like a like an organization? I think it doesn't happen overnight at all. But for me, the the next logical step was finding people uh, to work with, and this was finding a co-founder. So 
uh, Connor Schoen, who I had known from, from Y2Y and I had known him just as another person um, and classmate uh, in our year. And I saw in him a similar spark and motivation and passion for the issue that I had. And I remember, you know, just asking him if he wanted to chat over some ideas um, that I was thinking through over dinner. And I remember telling him about kind of the root idea of break time, which at that point was, was very little. It was something about like jobs and young adults experiencing homelessness and maybe a social enterprise. And I remember him one being very excited, but two very quickly offering to essentially leave the, the varsity track team to commit to doing this work. And so again, finding someone who is just as committed as you are and is, is willing and able to demonstrate that commitment was, was very important and powerful. Um, and I remember just the, the kind of days and weeks after that commitment, we began just sharing our ideas. We would go to pitch competitions with kind of like half-baked ideas essentially, but would just do them to, just to get feedback. And I think it's the process of sharing your idea that actually helps refine it and also helps you articulate what is it that you see is, is actually the problem and what do you see as your potential niche for solving it. And I think a lot of people, and including myself, are, are scared to share their ideas about, you know, whether it's a venture or a project or, or anything, but it's really kind of putting it out there that helps clarify it in your own mind, but also helps actually bring it into fruition because you're engaging other people, you're bringing in their ideas and feedback. And, and that's what I think helped propel us forward. And we just talked to as many people as possible, whether that's young adults experiencing homelessness or on other entrepreneurs or uh, nonprofits who eventually became our partners. And we just started honing in on, again, what is the challenge? What is the challenge? What is the problem that people are facing? And it kept going back to, again, there being job training programs, but nowhere to go after that. And so it just took a long process of kind of like digging deeper and deeper and deeper and working with the right person who you can count on as, as a partner in that process and as someone who's uh, yeah, willing to be as committed as you are. And what I'm hearing is a lot of passion, a lot of heart behind this project. And then on the reverse side of that coin, like the rational side of like, how are we going to make this happen? How do you balance that aspiration? You know, you have a passion for it, but maybe there is some doubt about how you're going to execute or did you not even worry about that because your passion was so strong? There was definitely a little bit of uncertainty or maybe a lot of uncertainty and, and fear throughout the process. I think what was most helpful for us um, and the framework we used is, is just to take little steps every single day. And like the, the mental framework I use is like, you're building a chain and every day you're adding like one link to the chain. And it's all about taking a step every single day and not breaking that chain because you know, even though it doesn't feel like much, like I might just be sending out like one email that day or like having one phone call with someone, but it's one thing I did that day. And when you look back a month later, a year later, again, you see how much progress you've made just by taking little steps every single day. And so for us, like the, the ultimate aspiration and vision for break time was often overwhelming because we just didn't know how to get there. 
but you have to trust in the journey and be willing to kind of um, put your vision out there, but not stress out about it and focus on, okay, what is, what is the thing that I can do now that will help me learn, that will help me test out something? What is the thing I can do today? And I think it's breaking things down into small things like that, that helps the kind of existential paralysis of like, oh my gosh, like, what do I even do? Why am I here? Like, what is the meaning of all of this that I think can just stall a project from the very start? Especially when you're trying to tackle an issue that is so big in that it does resonate with you so much. I can only imagine that there could be some paralysis, like you want to do this and you want to do this right. So I would love to parlay that into a conversation around how you handle feelings of overwhelm and being unfocused from my background research about your life and some friends of yours. I found out you have a meditation practice and that resonates with me as somebody who's had a fairly consistent practice for, for gosh, since late high school. I was, would love to hear a little bit about like why meditation has stuck in your routine. I think it's awesome to hear that, that you're also a practicing uh, meditator and also started pretty early in high school. And for me, yeah, meditation is, is in many ways, just a, a little treat for myself. And I think in, um, in our lives and in entrepreneurship, you're constantly thinking, you're constantly kind of giving out your energy, your thoughts, your ideas, and, and often getting lost in, in plans and lost in to-dos. And for me, meditation is a great way to start the day. So my practice is 20 minutes kind of right after I wake up. It's a great way to be able to just focus on something as simple, but as important as breathing and recognize that as long as you have your breath, you kind of have it all and that there's really nothing for you to do in that moment. And as someone who loves to plan ahead and loves to think through, okay, how is my day going to go? How can I best prepare for the things that are coming up? Giving yourself some time to, to not do that and to just experience the sounds you hear, the sights you see and the the things you smell, for example, is just like, it's like a little taste of, of true freedom every day in the morning. Um, and it's also a time where I can set intentions for the day and a time when I read through what I call like my declarations. Um, and these are essentially affirmations that a friend inspired me uh, to write. And there are a list of 10 things that I feel like are, are just things that I want to remind myself or or bring into my life. And for example, one of them is, um, you know, I trust the process of unfolding and trust my inner wisdom and intuition. And just being able to remind myself of that, of, of trusting the process of, you know, maybe not knowing where things are going, but believing in, in myself and what my intuition is saying is just a, a, a very great way to, to frame the day. And no matter what happens, I can always return back to those declarations or, or those beliefs, no matter if, if the day is going horribly or, or going very well. 
And let's double click on that practice. What is what does that look up look like rather? Is it a breath-based mindfulness practice? And how do you transition from that to these affirmations? Um, yeah, I would love to hear that. Yeah. So my practice, um, as I mentioned, is is 20 minutes of of breathing and Sometimes I just use a timer. Sometimes I use, um, uh, there's a great app called waking up with Sam Harris and 20 minutes. That's, that's kind of just for me, just for breathing. And then after that's wrapped up, um, I have my declarations on my phone. I used to have it on a piece of paper that I would just stick on my wall, but over the years I've, uh, edited them, refined them and feel like, you know, it's getting more and more kind of to the heart of who I am. And so I just keep them on and like my notes, for example, um, just so I can edit them if, if I want to. And so I, I pull that up, um, at that point in my day, I, I try to keep my phone on airplane mode. So I'm not seeing the notifications come in, but, um, I pull up my notes and, and just read through them and, and, and speak them out loud, uh, if I can. And it's just, it's like a, it's the practice of, of affirmations, but it's very powerful when you're able to speak, speak those things out. And for example, another one is that, you know, I'm full and fulfilled. And so for me, it's recognizing that, you know, I am a whole being and enough, not because of any particular one thing that I do, but just because, because I am, because I I exist, that is enough. And so it's just things like that, where it's, that is something that I'm sure I heard maybe someone else say, maybe heard it in a podcast, read it in a book. And like, maybe that phrase or quote really resonated with me. And it's something I wanted to incorporate into like my daily practice. Like these are like, I, I have 10 declarations. These are like my 10 things that I want to be reminded of every single day. And it's just a very centering and grounding practice, especially when life seems to change um, constantly, just to have one thing you know is consistent and being able to return to that no matter where you are in life. And you mentioned one of those, well, thank you for sharing, first of all. And one of those you said to believe in yourself, where, where did you learn that was it from a person, a book, or just life experiences, I think, reflecting on my own life, it's in those moments of self-trust where things work out for you for the better and for reasons that you might not be able to predict. That's kind of my framework. So I'd be interested to hear how you arrived at that being like a core piece of one of your core declarations. Yeah. I think a lot of it comes from my mom, who's one of my biggest inspirations. And, you know, she's the one who introduces me to a lot of books and, and um, like podcasts and and things like that. And I think just the idea that, so going back to kind of the declaration around trusting the process of unfolding, just recognizing that your life is something that's never like ever going to reach, you know, one point like the ultimate goal, potentially like, of course, everyone's going to die, but it's, it's never something that's like finished until that point. It's constantly a process that is changing. Your life is constantly in a process of unfolding. And 
when I was younger, that would be very scary of like, oh, like when, when will life just be like settled? When will it be like done and everything's great and everything's happy? I think there will never be like one point where that is the case. But if you learn to have fun and uh, trust every single moment along the process, it's almost like you can recreate that um, kind of joy and, and eternal happiness that I think we all want. So it's, yeah, it's just, it's a lot of trust in, in myself, but also in, in the universe that it'll reveal itself um, and play out just how it's meant to be. And for me, I guess that, that strong conviction just comes from life experience and being able to see all the times where, um, you know, I was afraid that something would go wrong or something did go wrong and just reflecting on how in the end um, it all does make sense. Even, even when in the moment it might seem like this is probably the worst thing that could possibly happen. Yeah. That's so, so awesome to hear and really does resonate with my framework on, on that. Um, Just to be mindful of the time you mentioned that you revise and edit these declarations and God knows a lot happens in college and even more has happened in the past year of college for just better understanding ourselves and change. So whether it is a deck, a new declaration uh, one of those 10 or any other new belief behavior or routine that you've adopted that you think has helped your own life. Hmm. One big, I guess, this is actually one of my declarations now, but one concept that was really a big shift in my mind that I learned about during the pandemic was kind of the concept of, of unity consciousness. And I'm, it's still something that I'm learning about, but at its core is the, the belief that at, in all of ourselves, at our core, we are all united and connected by, by something. And maybe that something is indescribable, but it could be, it could be spirit. It could be um, our soul. It could be, it could be really anything. But one metaphor that I loved that I think I heard in a podcast was that we're all the, like the water in the ocean, right? We're all just part of this big ocean of, of the universe of, of spirit. And, um, you know, if you think about, you know, you can scoop up ocean water in a cup and, the challenge is that we often confuse ourselves with being that cup. And it's like, oh, all the cups look different. They're different sizes. They're tall, they're short, they're colored differently. And we think we're all the cup. When in reality, it's the water that's within the cup. That's who we really are and that we don't actually see. And so if we just see each other as like these cups, um, we're forgetting that we're all part of this, you know, this ocean, this body of water, this united consciousness. And, you know, that's just something that I've been, Kind of mulling about and, and, and contemplating, and um, again, don't uh, st- don't know it kind of perfectly, but is something that was just such a shift in my brain of like, wow, like being able to view all people, all beings um, as connected in some way um, gave me this like really deep sense of peace, and it helped me see you know other people, other situations, not as like um, other beings or as like separate from who I am. And yeah, I just like, just thinking about that now just gives me like an immense sense of, of peace and connectedness. And I feel like that's 
when I know it's like a kind of a thing that resonates strongly with, with who I am. That's beautiful and does resonate with the concept, like the concept of sympathy in stoicism, which is kind of a, a tradition that I've read and has resonated with me. So I'm wondering where does this conceptualization, does it come from a spiritual framework? Is it something you learned from your mother? Was it something you read uh, or was it just something that you came across? I think you might've mentioned a podcast. I love, um, I think this particular concept came from one of Oprah's uh, super soul conversations with, I think it was with Deepak Chopra. Um, so that I think was the specific podcast through which I heard this, but I would say other big kind of influencing uh, philosophies or, or people in my life have been um, Eckhart Tolle with um, in his books, A New Earth and Power of Now, and um, also, also Stoicism. One of my favorite books is uh, A Guide to the Good Life by William Irvine. And it's kind of I mean, a contemporary take on Stoicism. And I don't necessarily practice everything, but I think it's a very informative philosophy on, on how I live my life. Um, so yeah, those are kind of the different factors. Well, Hey man, that idea of the unity of consciousness and the interconnectedness of all definitely comes out in your project break time. So you're not only internalizing it and conceptualizing it, but you're putting it out into the world. So I think that makes a lot of sense for me and Thank you for taking the time, share your story, both personally and in your break time project. And we will have show notes and links to everything on the website, but is there anywhere you would like to point people to with either personally or with break time? Yeah. Well, first, thank you, Chris, again, for, for having me and for incredibly thoughtful questions. I really appreciate it. Um, if you're interested in getting to know more about break time, you can find us online at breaktime.org or on Instagram, just at breaktime. And if anyone has any questions, you can email me directly at, at Tony at breaktime.org and would love to, to continue the conversation. Well, thank you, Tony. It was an absolute pleasure. And like I said, we'll link everything in the show notes. Awesome. Thanks, Chris. Hey, everybody. Thank you all for tuning in. Hope you enjoyed that one. As always, you can find links to everything we discussed, show notes, and a lot more goodies like my favorite reads on my website at chrismcgrory.net. That's C-H-R-I-S-M-C-G-R-O-R-Y.net. Thanks so much, and see you next time.